that over here. No, he was trying not to stain your table. Right, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that, was, that was it. That was exactly, <laughs> exactly what I exactly right. Uh, special thanks, uh, special welcome to uh, Tom, Brown, and Mary in fl- uh, the northern Florida area. Southern and, uh, and then uh, to the uh, Murphy family. God bless Central you. Florida. Uh, who's, where's, yeah, Clearwater, Clearwater, Tampa, where, where is that? Mid? Mid? Clearwater, no. Gulf of Mexico. Gulf of Mexico? Really? Okay. So, good to see you guys. Uh, they, uh, they actually said that you guys prayed very fast. We do. And the conservative shul was actually easier for them because they sing everything, so. Um, but a conservative shul doesn't pray as much. Ah. So, there it is. So the, um, I don't know when we're going to see the Browns next. We'll be going down for uh, their wedding uh, in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, but the Murphys are definitely coming up for Sukkot. So if you're planning on building a sukkah, inviting folks into your sukkah, you're going to want to invite the Murphys into your sukkah. So we're going to want to figure out um, and start to get that stuff on the uh, calendar. I know. We haven't even had the fast of the fourth or the fast of the fifth. We're already talking about Sukkot. But you know what? Planning needs to be done. So I don't know about you, but June was a lot faster than I thought it was going to. Uh, shocking. Shocking. I know. So, so the, the deal here is, uh, just so everyone is clear, um, Simcha Torah is like the ultimate end to the Sukkot festival. So... Um, we're going to try and build our Sukkot visitation stuff from Simchat Torah back rather than from the beginning forward to try and maximize the back end of the Sukkot week, okay? So if you're thinking that you're going to do that, then you're going to want to get with uh, Morgan and shoot her a note and let her know so that we can get that on the meetup as quickly as possible. Fast of the fourth is literally one month from today plus one day, because it'll be on Sunday instead of Shabbat, and then we'll have the fast of the 5th, which is the 9th of Av, we'll actually fall on the 10th of Av, and you can look that up at that time. We are closed for July, so, uh, <laughs> don't show up. So, you are you welcome, up. you are welcome to, to show up, you're welcome to show up, um, stay out there, but, you know, we'll be in the back, and, and, uh, mulching beds and stuff like that so uh, God bless you all I, I believe the Uphams are going to uh, 
open their home for at least one Shabbat, and who knows who else will do that. So um, we're grateful for the community, and uh, I'm grateful for the fact that we're watching young men grow and become bar mitzvah. I've got one done, one done, lady, and you got it right. One, one, what are you up, two years? Next summer. Next summer. Awesome. No pressure. Grant, Grant is... <laughs> Grant is... Um, Back and you know preparing. Prepare. Yes. But, I so mean, after today, he's like ready. That's right. He's right. He was there. Not on bar mitzvahs, but I thought that we should mention that the um, Cindy Garner's mom, Aline, yes, was at risk for a heart attack. Was in the hospital, but they did do bypasses, and she's going to be fine. Um, she was going to get a bypasses. she was going to get a shunt and a mm-hmm. catheterization and all that. And they said, "Oops, something's completely occluded. We're just going to go in there and." Fix all that. So I think she did get discharged from the hospital. Or yeah, double bypass. Quadruple. quadruple bypass. And um, she did get discharged from the hospital, but that was like on Thursday of this week, I think. Okay, so she's and in the Spartan race on Tuesday. Is that what <laughs> yeah. No. So, so um, I feel like she could. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that I the bet. family would appreciate your prayers as they Absolutely. help her. For those of you who are unawares, we have three widows that we do support on a regular basis as a community. Um, if you're not giving to that, then send some money to Greg and he'll figure out what to do with it. Um, in the he knows. <laughs> he knows what to do. He has to So, uh, so Aline, Aline is, is definitely one of those widows. So, uh, yeah. So, maybe a nice card. Maybe a nice card. Would be good. I do have her address. Right? That would be so, good. So, uh, so, there you go. That's good. Anything else? Morgan, is there anything else? Sure. Thank you all for bearing with us as we train our sons. <laughs> <laughs> it's a delight. Oh, I love it. Totally fine. Glad to have him here. It's Amen. Uh, it Amen. Is, it is hard work, and I'm sure you all remember us going through it with two previous children. And um, they've come out okay, so we're doing the same thing. Okay, so the electroshock <laughs> therapy is going to happen <laughs> right exactly. after the That's happening right now. Isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and how cool was it to have your son here? Yeah. 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 Are you actually old enough to be married and have a son? Oh, yeah. Last I checked the law, I was just over the just limit. Just over the limit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you continue the patience because that's going to have to be the case for my son as yep. well. But We're also, glad to hear that. But also, hey, it's... Um, my sister had a daughter. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yay! Absolutely. And she was born actually with more hair than I have. And she's a god lover. Yes. 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 That's right. That's right. All right. And a grandson actually got snipped in a good way. Up here. Top versus bottom. Wait a minute. What are we talking about? Wait till three. What's up? That's just me. Yeah, Noah had his Sharon on Lagoma, and so we were there for that. That was what a handsome young man he is. Yeah, yeah, he's a good looking kid. Um, But uh, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. It was interesting. Lagoma was a lot of fun. So that was fun. That's a Mazel Tov. That is so cool. Uh, Jeremy Compel's coming the fourth of July. Fourth of August. Fourth of August. Nothing's happening in July. That's right. Well, nothing's happening here. But hopefully the community will flourish and uh, have some marvelous things going on. So 4th of August, you want to come here and greet this man and his wife and so forth. It's been uh, impactful, I think, in our our walk and in our understanding of the scriptures and encouragement from Orthodox Judaism. Anything else?
What are you moving? I'm not moving. Like I'm taking that. No decision. Down. No decision has been made. No decision has he been is made. Parting things is to a department. This we are dividing things up. Some division is good. We divide between the holy and common. <laughs> you know what? I think Jacob <laughs> made two camps. I hope that you have blessed God that he has. He has. You started off with pumping gas for airplanes. And now he has made you into two, two camps. camps. One is in Dallas. That's right. And one is in right. Two and, is, and he is Ben And this Yacob. is exactly why this young man is now leading. <laughs> That's exactly right. Please lead us. Okay. All righty. So we're going to jump in here. We're in Bahaloka. Bahaloka. Bahaloska. Um, which is one of the longest starting points. We actually get to quite a bit of Hebrew before we finally get to the, the title of this parasha. Parsha has to do with lighting the lamps of the menorah which is a bit out of place, considering the context of the rest of the passage, or so it seems. Um, but one of the cool parts about this one, they, uh, this gives us a good opportunity to remember how great and cool the menorah is. And um, there's a really neat little midrash, midrash rabah, and they say that this is, uh, it's kind of weird, because God is the light of the world, why do we have to light lamps for God? And like the midrash rabah likes to do, they come up with a really neat illustration to give us an idea of what that looks like. So they say, this is, this is like a king who's coming to visit his friend, and, he's, and he says, I'm going to have dinner with you. So the friend gets out all of his stuff and makes it all up, and, and then the king's entourage arrives. And of course, the king's entourage is gaudy and over the top and you know, it, just covered in gold and all this stuff. And the, and the poor friend is so bummed because he realizes his stuff is just not that great. He takes it all and he puts it away. And the king, and the king comes in the house and he's like, What's where, where? Where's all the silverware? Where's all the you know? What's what's going on here? And the and the and the and the friend is like, oh, I was just so embarrassed. Like I saw you guys show up. It, obviously, you just you just have your own stuff because mine mine can't possibly compare to yours. And the um, and the king responds and says, I shall set aside all the utensils that I have brought, and for love of you, I shall use none but yours. So in our case, the holy one, blessed to be He, is all light. As it says, the light dwells with him. Yet he said to Israel, prepare for me a candelabra and lamps. And this idea that basically, and this is kind of the picture you get uh, so oftentimes in scripture, this idea that God can do anything. He doesn't need us. We're not, we're not uh, unlike the pagan concepts, it's not like God doesn't go hungry if we don't give him offerings or something like that. Um, uh, but that the idea that God wants us to be participatory. And I think that you get that picture in the beginning of these first few verses um, it's so cool that uh, it's, it's ra it seems random that all of a sudden it talks about the workmanship of the menorah in the middle of this, but I think that it's partly to serve as a reminder that the workmanship is something of a miracle. I mean, the making it out of one piece of gold is in of itself pretty complicated, especially in the middle of the wilderness, even more so, and tradition, of course, holds that it is completely miraculous as to how it was made. And it's interesting because it doesn't start with the miracle. It starts with, here's what Aaron's supposed to do. Once the miracle's been done, this is how you do it. And this is a reminder, this is all miraculous. And it kind of reminds me of Paul. You know, Paul says, For you are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua, unto good works which God had foreordained that you should walk in them. In other words, God gets the whole thing started with a miracle that we have really no part in. But then it's like, well, you better start doing something with that. You can't just stop there and then just be like, well, but God did it for me, so I don't have to. Um, the idea is that God does the miracles, but we are still expected to participate. And that more importantly, he wants us to. I think it's a really amazing thought. You know, it's like, it's like when your dad says, hey, I want you to come help me 
work in the garage or come help me put this uh, this together or something like that. When you're a little kid, like that's huge. Or when mommy pulls pulls you aside and like, would you like to help me put up the dishes? Yes. Now, when they become mommies, they may not like putting up the dishes. But when you're small, the fact that mom or dad wants you to participate is a big deal. And that's what God is saying. God is saying, I can do all of this by myself, but I want you with me, which is really cool. Um, so then we dig into the, the Levites, and they talk about all the different um, the different relationships. of this. They, they, they bring in these guys. They get them all set up. They have them do all these different activities to prepare to be... Um, Oh, yes, sir. Oh, sorry. Jump in. Uh, so just before we move off of the menorah, um, so we know that the tabernacle in this world is really a replica mm-hmm. of the tabernacle in, in that world, uh, or the world above, as it were. So <clears throat> the, there's a lot of interesting connections. And you, you picked up on one with the Midrash about why do we even need to rekindle lamps, right? Because because uh, the light dwells with him, which is a quote from Daniel, mm-hmm. and um, and then of course by by extension or through other scripture, obviously we we can connect that immediately to Mashiach, right? Who said, mm-hmm. uh, "I am the light." Right. right. Um, uh, so in that tabernacle above, you know, one could say that. Messiah is the light in, in that tabernacle, and the menorah is an allusion to that light in the earthly tabernacle. Um, and we we recall, you know, we talked about in the past when uh, when the lamps were burning, which was pretty much all the time, right? And they go in and burn the incense. You know, the smoke would kind of fill the room, and all you have is these seven, seven eyes staring mm-hmm. at you through the, the dark and the and the smoke. Right. And and so we there's some interesting connections. In fact, one of the connections was in the Haftorah today right. in Zechariah, right, where it talked about um, the stone when it was talking to, to Yehoshua the high priest, talking about the stone. Um, in this the context there is a stone for the tabernacle which 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 is all, or the temple, which is also you know, another name for Messiah, right? Mm-hmm. But said says the stone will have seven eyes, right? And he'll inscribe something on it. Um, and the eyes, chapter 4, a few verses later, chapter 4, <coughs> verse 9 or 10, the eyes, uh, the eyes, the seven eyes roam, roam, go to and fro through the earth, right? And like, what is, what is all this? And then when you get into the apostolic um, writings, particularly the book of Revelation, we, we get all these other connections that become, I think, useful. So, for example, chapter 1, uh, verse 12, that I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, etc., etc. Um, uh, he had in his right hand seven stars, so now we have seven lamps, seven, seven lights, seven lampstands, Seven eyes, seven stars, and and then as you kind of continue in Revelation chapter two verse one, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So this is referring to 
to, to Messiah, he who holds the seven stars. So he's got these seven stars in his right hand, and he walks amidst the seven lampstands. And um, when you get to chapter 3, uh, these things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So now we have seven lights, seven lampstands, seven eyes, seven stars, seven spirits of God, right? So all of this is kind of connected, and, and we learned that um, at the end of chapter 1 in Revelation, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven um, assemblies, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven assemblies. So the lampstands in this allegory represent these seven communities, and mm-hmm. stars represent the um, seven angels. And and then without without going through all, all the minutia, when you when you get to chapter like five um, of Revelation, and then I think also in chapter eight. Um, we learned that the uh, that the seven spirits of God are the angels, and the eyes, the seven eyes, also refer to these angels. So, so there's this interesting connection between the menorah, which is an allusion to Messiah, the light of Messiah, and then all these other connections that we see throughout the Tanakh and into the Apostolic Scriptures about the these seven angels and I think it was even in I think it was also in the Hoff Torah that talked about um, was it in the Hoff Torah that talks about um, that he would that, that, that he would be that Joshua would be um, elevated above the above the angels right so you have this you have this idea of these seven angels that represent these seven eyes, etc., are ultimately Messiah is over these, mm-hmm. has been exalted over these seven archangels. Um, and so, anyway, the, the point is that the menorah has all of these really interesting connections throughout the Tanakh. When you kind of follow the, mm-hmm. when you follow the threads, you know, there's all these interesting connections to. Um, to the light of Messiah and and how he uses these angels to um, to do his bidding and ultimately mm-hmm. uses the angels to, to to gather in you know the outcasts mm-hmm. of Israel. And, uh, so anyway, there's a lot of interesting. There's a lot, there's like a whole really deep study here just on, on following these threads through. Well, and if you look at the the tabernacle, there's a lot of connections between each of the elements to God, the all of the entirety, and God. Uh, one of the sages, there's a Divrei Noam, uh, actually has commentary talking about the, sh- the shape of the menorah and how it corresponds to the Torah. This was so cool. So they said the menorah had seven branches, 11 knobs, nine flowers, 22 goblets, and it was 17 handbreadths in height. These numbers represent the five books of the written Torah. And you're thinking, they do? The first verse in the book of Genesis has seven words. The first verse of Exodus has 11 words. The first verse of Leviticus has nine words. The first verse of Numbers has 17 words. And the first verse of Deuteronomy, 22 words. Really? How cool was that? But the, but the, but the cool, but actually it's interesting because when you read, you read Isaiah, and you, can, you know, the old question was like, is the servant Messiah, is the servant Israel? And the answer is yes. And like, it, in a sense, I mean, Judaism wrestles a little bit with this, the, the 
Hasidic, more mystical side tends to um, have some of their own answers for it. But it's there is an interesting correlation between the Torah, the people of Israel, Messiah, God. They're all like there is an interplay there. Whereas, like obviously for for um, the apostolic writers, they saw no problem with this interplay. They're like, look, Messiah is the Torah. He is God. So they're all one. And the people of Israel, he's part of the people of Israel, so they're kind of part of him too. So it's this this interesting unite unity of structure here. And uh, but it's a good reminder because yeah, when you read, especially if you're reading the Book of Numbers, there are gonna be times when you're thinking to yourself, why am I reading all of this? And it's helpful to remember that this this isn't just simply God's word. Like this is actually God Himself. Like this is this is an expression of who God is. He's not just the things that He said. But it is somehow, at some level, him, too. Yes, sir. Well, just to uh, go off that, and your 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 correlation between the menorah, the lights, and Messiah, I think are evident. He is the light of the world. God is the light of the world. But the correlation then to us, as represented in these lamps, the Baal Shem Tov said that the lamps represent the soul of every Jew, mm-hmm. and that and that, and that every Jew has a switch. Without exception, every Jew has a switch that can be turned on for a passion for God. Hmm. And that switch, when it's flipped, is what he does, what he or she does. Well, we would not say every Jew. We would say every person is has a switch that they can be what God wants them to be. Hmm. And the menorah represent that switch, that, that light. It's the... It's, Aaron is supposed to light these lights. God doesn't just light it like, right. like that first altar. Aaron is supposed to light these lights. So it's something that, as you brought out, God could do. He doesn't have to have anybody light these lights. And, and certainly doesn't need light in this place. Right. There's no light needed. There's no light behind the curtain. And there's things being done behind the curtain. Why do we need light out here? And the answer is because that's God's choice. God's choice is that he, that his good Things that he does in this world, he has determined will be through us. Mm-hmm. And being his disciples, and that's why it's such a wonderful thing when we read in the in the in the Sermon on the Mount, where Yeshua actually makes this very correlation. You know, long before the Baal Shem Tov says that, by the way, we're the lights in the world. Yeshua said, "You, my disciples, you are the light of the world, and that your deeds must be seen. They will be seen." And they and they are the rep, your good deeds are the representation of my holiness in the world. All the good things that the people see in the world are going to be because you do stuff. Right, right, right. We are his representatives. We are his um, his people there. And actually, the correlation that Yeshua does is actually right back to this passage because it's all about the menorah. They they they, they, they light a lamp that lights up the whole house, referencing the house being a pseudonym or a synonym for the temple. Um, the Levites get 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 uh, get added in here, and it's kind of cool. There's a lot of offering imagery here, and of course there is the the funny little tradition that says that Aaron actually literally waved each one of the Levites. Um, which so you were there. Uh, by the way, in case you didn't know, Joshua actually has a DNA for for uh, for Cohen. Uh, um, somewhere, somewhere in the line. Do we have to stop saying there is no Levite now? Well, no, I, not really. I whispered there's three here, but I didn't say It's that. a tiny, <laughs> tiny percentage. I've probably got more Indian in me than Cohen. Um, but, but that actually does happen in the Frisco kid. That Indian's a little Jewish Indian. Uh, anyway, um, 
But no, yeah, they. But it's, it's <laughs> the a best movie. line ever. <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie. Anyway, so they. Um, it's especially great if you have my dad's fully edited version that takes all the swearing out of the movie. Um, but they. Uh, so in the. Um, but this idea, this idea of offering, because this is also something that um, the episode writers key in on. Paul talks about this concept that you are an offering, and he describes himself as a drink offering, and. In this particular chapter, God literally correlates the offering to the Levites. I mean, he has them get waved like a wave offering because the, what's interesting about the wave offering is it's kind of a cool imagery if you think about it. The Levites, if you look in this chapter, the Levites have, it's kind of a weird thing because on the one hand, they're performing the service of God, but on the other hand, they're performing the service of the tent of meeting. And it's kind of like, well, what is it? Like, are they supposed to be serving God? Are they supposed to be serving Aaron? Are they serving the tabernacle? What's their role? And uh, the idea of a wave offering is really cool because the wave offering, if you remember from when we, when we anointed Aaron in the beginning, the wave offering is eaten. Like that's, you wave it before God basically to say, this is yours, but then it's eaten by the priest. It's like, a, it's something you kind of take back, so to speak. Um, and so in a way, it's kind of the same concept with these people. Like the Levites, they're waved before God saying, hey, this is yours. But then it's reappropriated to the priesthood to be doing the work here. So it's kind of the same idea in a sense with us too. Like we have, you can have, you can have tasks on this earth that are not obviously divine, so to speak, but they are all to be served, to be done in the service of God. Eating supper. Eating supper. But even also, but even like, like um, my boss's boss is in this room. Which I means I have to be very careful. What it's not. It's not true. He, um, but no, you should always be careful. I should always be careful. Um, but the great part about it is uh, I, it makes it easy on me because you know I, I appreciate the fact that someone who's in a position of authority above me respects my actually practices my faith. It's even better. But the idea though that like when I'm when I'm working in the office, I am still serving God, even though I am in a position in which the work that I'm doing is not spiritual or does it look spiritual it still is i mean these guys were in there cleaning animals because these the Levi, the levites were not the priests they weren't the cool ones who got to you know pour the blood out on the altar and all that stuff all that jazz they're support the support structure they're the ones cleaning up the blood after we're done they're doing they're doing the the work that other the, the you know we probably are walking in the temple with our offering going i'm so glad i'm not that guy. no actually we're thinking i want to be those they're, guys they're the temple janitors. yeah they're doing they're doing hard work that but it's up, for God. But that brings up the point that not all of us have a wise boss. That's true. So, I mean, we, if we don't have a wise boss, we still have this, exactly the same responsibilities. True. And the same opportunity to work out God's holiness for our boss and for right. our employer. Right. We may work for employers that are completely devoid of anything holy, as long as they're not doing something, you know, Wrong, you know, they're just involved in you know secular business or whatever else. We have an opportunity to work out exactly the same holiness right. as someone who works for a believing boss. We look at Daniel and Joseph. I mean, both of them working for pagans, and yet their work was intended. Their their bosses looked at them and said, "I see God in you." Yes, sir. In last week's portion, portion Masoda, we had the prince of each of the tribes brings an offering, right? Mm-hmm. It just turns out they all bring exactly the same offering. <laughs> um, all 12 of them. Which, uh, I'm not a miracle. But <clears throat> there's, a, there's a Midrash that says that uh, Aaron was, was feeling a little oh, right. a little bad because little he was bummed. like, man, 
look at the look at the offerings that all the other tribes have brought, and I didn't bring diddly. I mean, I, I I'm not prepared. I didn't prepare anything to. to Was I supposed and, to bring something? And, right. Yeah. <laughs> and and so he's like feeling a little maybe a little guilty or he's feeling bad. And Hashem says, No, no, no. You don't understand. You are the offering for mm. you know, the. In other words, the the the. The le- the Levim, the Kohenim Levim are an offering in and of themselves, mm-hmm. and hence the reason why there's the they're waived, right? right. To say, no, no, you don't have to bring gold and silver and bowls and whatever. You bring you because you are the offering. You are my possession. Right? So that's kind of cool. Absolutely, very cool. Not just any offering; it's the best. Because right. they're in place of the firstborn. Right. Right. It's always an exciting offering to get to, to get, but now you're that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. They were the they were the special ones. Um, th- we dig in here a little bit further. I'm going to try and keep this moving because we we uh, we only have so much time. I know that I know that some of you are here all day, but some of us you know aren't going to. Be. Um, but in the uh, in w- one of the things about this particular ch- uh, parasha is for the one of the probably the first time really in scripture you realize the Torah is not chronological. Up until this point, it's been a little confusing, you know, kind of lots like, what month, what year are we? I'm kind of confused. Uh, but chapter 9 is clearly, because they date chapter 1, they also date chapter 9. You know that the beginning of chapter 9 happens before the rest of what has up to this point been happening in Numbers. And it's a bit like, okay, so where are we? What is, what's going on here? And um, it's interesting because there's this, there's this tradition... Um, that the uh, this is a, it's, it's it's interesting because the, the going back in time it's ironic that when they go forward in time in the same story because these guys want to come and offer the Pesach offering they can't God says come back next month well when they come back next month it basically catches up again so all of a sudden it's like this it's almost like we have this little weird uh, flashback you know they're all of a sudden the Little, little edges of the screen get kind of blurry. Two ago. Yeah, I know. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like the beginning. You, you always know. I don't know. I, I feel like the TV shows have really kind of spoiled us here. You, the opening episode, the main character is, you know, looks like they're about to shoot the, their best friend, and you're like, oh my goodness. And then, like, and then of course, you look at yourself and you go, something is they're not telling us. And then they feel two, <coughs> two months later, you know, two months earlier, and you're like, oh, now we're going to get the whole story. Come on. Anyway. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it flips back and forth. But what's happening here, I think the reason why they do this is because the point of the story is actually chronological. The point of the story was the second month. The whole reason why God takes them into the story about here, this is the Pesach offering in, in the wilderness is because these guys were so awesome, God wanted to explain why they're having Pesach in the second month. Tradition holds, much like our, uh, our illustrious Joseph of Arimathea, who has a great name, um, and Nicodemus, Tradition holds that these guys were unclean because they had been burying somebody who had no other friends or family to bury them. So it was a charity case, basically. And that's why, because they look at it and they just go, wait, 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 we had two weeks' notice. How did, you, how did these guys, if they were the ones carrying Joseph's bones, they'd put the bones down, they go, you know, do the little red heifer deal or whatever, they get ready, then they come back for day 14 and we're all good. So, like, how did they not know to get ready in time? And the only way that it makes sense is if it just happened. They, you know, these guys are walking around his dead body. They go bury the guy because they have to, and they don't have enough time to get rid. So what's cool about this story is this, the sages teach that this is the only 
Pesach that they celebrated in the wilderness <coughs> because God had told them in Exodus, you will celebrate this in the land. Mm -hmm. So this is a land command, and well, at least this particular one. And so this is an exception. This is a unique situation. But then there's a second tradition that says it is the reason why this is kind of like almost kind of buried in the middle of the chapter, or the middle of the book, is because it's a disgrace to Israel that they only celebrated one. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe is looking at this going, this doesn't make sense. God said you only have to do it in the, in the, in the, in the land. We only did it in the wilderness as a special exemption. But then they say it's a bad thing that they only did it this one time. It's like God didn't tell them to. How is that, how is that to their shame? Lubavitcher Rebbe says that these guys are the secret. See, God didn't or, or, ordin, did not ordain a system in which these men could keep the Pesach. They came to God. They said, no, this is not okay. I want to do the mitzvah of the Pesach. I may not have to do the mitzvah of the Pesach, but I want to do the, the mitzvah of the Pesach. So God actually ordained the, the law on this because they asked for it. They didn't have to. They chose to. The Lubavitcher Rebbe ends by saying that the lesson of the displaced ninth chapter of Numbers is clear. God desires and expects of us that we refuse to reconcile ourselves to the decree of galut, of exile, and its diminution of his manifest involvement in our lives. He desires and expects of us that we storm the gates of heaven with the plea and demand, why should we be deprived? And it's that, so when we are praying Yamidah each morning, over and over and over again, we're asking God to bring back the temple, bring back the gifts, bring back all this stuff. It's not, because if you think about it, right now, if you look at it from a human perspective, this is great. We don't have to do all this stuff. I mean, if you've been reading in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, there's a ton of very particular rules, and some of which uh, Judaism does practice today as in practice, and some of which you can't. I mean, like the offerings, you can't do. There's a lot of detail in those offerings. But instead of looking at it like, oh, thank goodness, you don't have to do that, which I feel like is what I think is so, so tempting as a human being, um, these guys give us the other picture, which is to say, I want to do that. They're looking at it going, I want to do this. You know, they, 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 they would rather have more mitzvot. It's like, give me more. I want more. I want to do everything that you have offered for me to do. I want to do them all. And it's kind of like, I mean, think about it, this picture. It, it's sort of like, um, you know, like right now, Julian and I don't have any kids. So our prayer is asking for a firstborn son. You know, that is, of course, something that... Or daughter. What? No, we'd be happy with a daughter. Don't get me wrong. I ask for a son because there's a, a special mitzvah for an offering that's tied to a firstborn son. You only get to do it for the first one. If you have a son as number three, which is amazingly awesome, you don't get to do the mitzvah. And I'd be happy with that. But I want the opportunity to do the mitzvah. So we ask God for the firstborn so that you have the opportunity. We will still be thrilled with the firstborn daughter. Because as we can see, they're pretty awesome. Um, there's a couple of them on this side. Uh, but just to point out that that's the idea. You want to crave the opportunity to do those mitzvot. Yes, sir. And, and I think that Lubavitcher's Rebbe's point even goes a step further than what, what you initially described is that the Pesach in the, in the wilderness actually was orchestrated by God for the purpose to elevate these two men, which draws, I mean, certainly draws into the picture of Messiah. So the, the whole Pesach, the whole Israel celebrates the Pesach in order that these two men can miss it. <laughs> In order that we can observe that we should, in, in fact, storm the gates to perform 
the good. And this is what, and, and Joseph and uh, Nachimon are the perfect examples. So we, we might not necessarily, all of Yeshua's suffering on that day was for the purpose of allowing these two men to do this righteous deed, but we could draw a similar conclusion. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. It's like we want to see these two men do something that is untoward in human terms. It is ugly and awful in human perspective as an ultimate deed of mercy and love for their master. Yeah. And so that we can say that's the way that we should act. When we're told to do things that what we seem are that seem difficult, well, when God says do this and it seems difficult, we can say those two men did something they didn't have to do because they love God. How much more should we do things that he's asked us to do? Absolutely. It's kind of like, you know, you see the, um, there's always that beggar on the corner of the street. You kind of hope he's not there when you walk by because you just don't, you're in a hurry. You don't want to be bothered. Oh, I don't have any cash on me. I have to go to the bank, you know, whatever it might be. And it's like, no, you want to have the opposite attitude. You have to live in Jerusalem, actually, Josh, with the experience what you're talking about. No, no, I think if you work uptown, you'd be surprised how many guys are up there in the corner of the street. <laughs> but the point is that, like, you instead you should have the opposite attitude. You, you walk by and you're like, that guy's not there today. Man, I wanted to do that mitzvah. Like, that's the different the different way of looking at it. Yes, sir. I think, I think another, maybe a, a little bit broader lesson from this is that... We ought not wait for perfect conditions right. hmm. to do a mitzvah, right? Hmm. I mean, there are certain things we can't do for various reasons. Um, some people take the view, well, if I can't do it right, hmm. I'm just hmm. not going to do anything. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a total cop-out. Guilty. Total cop-out. So <laughs> yeah, We all are to a degree. So we... We should learn from 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 this story that, look, even in imperfect conditions, we should do whatever we can. We should keep the mitzvah hmm. and the mitzvot hmm. as best we can with whatever we have, because that is still better than nothing. And and Hashem can honor can, can Hashem can work with that and honor that, right? Hmm. And so I think you know, um, to me that that's. It's just, just a, it's a good uh, attitude to take. Hmm. Is you know just because you might not be able to keep a mitzvah exactly the way you want, do what you can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. Well, I was gonna say um, these guys because you read the commandment to keep Passover. Nowhere in there does it sound like does it sound like there's an opportunity that okay if you can't keep it because you're unclean. Do, do it later. In the text of like the commandment that's earlier, you know, in, in the book, it, it doesn't okay. even seem like that's even a possibility. Right? Instead, these, they say you can't. They said if you're unclean, you can't do it. You know, whatever. Right. Like, and and these guys, and to to, to uh, Mr. Upton's point, these guys had the attitude that no, we're going to do it. You just need to tell us how. <laughs> right. And, right. and I, I think it's a common misconception, especially among uh, Christianity, is that everything's a hard and fast rule. You, if you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. And hmm. I think. You know, God is, is a little bit more lenient than that. He wants you to observe the commandments, and if you're in a position that you know you maybe are not in the best position to do so, you should still try. Well, it's kind of like in some ways, it's like Pesach today. 
we're not we can't really keep Paysock today. Yeah, can't. I mean, we can't. We can't have the offering. We should. Which means that our yeah. current yeah right. We can't, yeah. If you're in your backyard trying to keep the Paysock today, that's a mistake. Stop it. But, um, <laughs> but you can't keep the Paysock today. Uh, which means then that like what you're doing is really more like kind of a practice run basically. I mean, you can keep some of the elements, but it's not really keeping the whole mitzvah. So it would be easy to look at it and go, well, we can't do all of it, so why do any of it? Let's do it in our hearts. The prayer service in Judaism, the liturgical service in Judaism, is a perfect example exactly. of this, hmm. right? We were supposed to be in the temple at these times making sacrifice. Right. We can't do that anymore. So what are we going to do? We'll pray instead. We're going to offer the sacrifice mm -hmm. of, our, of these bulls. Mm -hmm. Play on the word Hebrew there. Of, of our lips, right? Because that's what we can do. And and they've perfected that mitzvah now for, you know, 2,000 years. And it's beautiful because, but it's taking, it was doing whatever they could do, hmm. you know, in the con, in, in the circumstance. And, mm -hmm. um, and so there's just a lot to learn from that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, next on, the, on our... Uh, portion we get into the idea of the um, the trap the journeys that they were in if you remember Moses gets a chance here to talk to God in Exodus and God says the people are problematic they keep doing things they shouldn't be doing and if I go with them there's a good chance they're gonna make me mad and bad things are gonna happen so you go without me Moses I'll stay here and don't worry I'll send you know my top angel to come with you on the way but I don't think it's a good idea for us to get too close. And Moses' response is, if you don't go with us, we're not going. Um, and it's cool is that, to the, and this is one of the things, we, we, I, I admit, there are times I kind of lose track of, it, of, the, of the nobility of the generation of the wilderness. They have a really crummy end, and it's very easy sometimes to forget how many good things they did. This section of the parasha is incredible. I mean, these people refused to move unless God was moving. And they refused to stay if God was moving. Like, I mean, it talks about they would, they would set up and take down, set up and take down. This is a huge camp of people. I mean, there are massive numbers of people. I mean, you can't even imagine the, the traffic back up here. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my goodness, Judah takes forever to set up his tent, you know. We're in the back, you know, Dan's in the back going, come on, what's going on up there? Anyway, you want to start and, and so they, they're all, you know, but they got to take it, put it all up. And then sometimes the it says, blast. yeah, Where's the short blast? sometimes they would, they would put everything down and like in the evening or in the morning, put it all down in the evening, just when they're going to go to bed, up oh, the trumpet blast again, it's time to move again. But they were follow God wherever he went at any time. And it's actually cool because the, um, I can't tell you what, this was, this was the week for, for uh, really interesting commentary, especially from, um, I think it was Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, may have been on this one too. I can't remember exactly which one it is, but they're just talking about this idea. It was Lubavitcher Rebbe. He was really, he really likes this part. He um, he jumps in on this one and he points out that not only was it a lot of trouble for the people, but the tent of meeting is like a huge deal. Like I mean, to, to this is a massive structure with a lot of interlocking pieces that they had to set all the way down and put all the way back up again. And uh, and he points out that when they were only there for like a day. They still put the sanctuary up. It wasn't like, you know, there wasn't like God told them, 
don't worry, we're gonna, this is going to be a short stop, so don't worry about putting up the tabernacle for me. You know, I'll just go ahead and hover here and then we'll move on. That wasn't the deal. <laughs> that wasn't the deal here. They, they, would, they didn't know how long they were going to be there. So they would put up the tabernacle every single time. And the, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that this teaches us that each and every one of our stations in life is significant unto itself. A person may find him or herself in a certain place or in a certain situation for a very brief period. And it may seem to him that he is merely on the way to some other place. Yet there is always something in that place or situation to be sanctified, something that can serve as a tent of meeting between heaven and earth. You're like, That's what a cool. great idea. So every time you're in the middle of something, you know, this is especially, like, for, for some people, you know, your, your life is kind of in, like, you're kind of in cruise control mode. You've got a new baby. You've got a new job. You've got a relatively new house, a relatively new wife. Right now, you probably can't even think about what you want to do next. Like, everything else is just, it's just smooth sailing for the, as far as you can see. But there, and, and you're probably in a favor of the same boat. You know, you've got grandkids popping up everywhere, you know, all this kind of deal. So it's like, but there are other times in life when you're in this in-between stages, and you're like, you're kind of, you're, tr you're, you're between one thing where you are and where you want to be. And maybe you're, maybe you're not done with school yet, or you're not married yet, or you don't have kids yet, or you don't have grandkids yet, or you don't have a job that you want, and you feel like you're kind of stuck in a place you don't really want to be. And it's easy, I think, in those moments to kind of think about, how do I get out of here? And all you can think about is to get to the next stage. And the Babashirari's point here, and this idea of this, of this journey, is, is that each stage is, is valuable. And you should be setting up the tabernacle each time, even if it's only for a day or two. Yes, sir? I, I just I wanted to, to emphasize the... <laughs> um, you're talking about the nobility of the the, the, the generation in the wilderness, and I want to talk about uh, you know Pat kept moving a lot of people to no joke. I don't know how you know I don't know what y'all experiences, but I've been you know in a situation where I was responsible for moving 50 or more people between places for an entire week. And getting ten people to get their stuff together, and you know, from you know, and you're responsible for everybody from you know, every day and, and you know, morning to night, and you make sure they you know keep brush and foot foot bed and all that. It's it's not an easy task to do just ten people, let alone you know however many like six hundred thousand, whatever. Especially to do it in order and pack up the tent of meeting, and you have to be able to just drop on a move on a you know blast of a trumpet, and and they, he could and you know God could very well move at night because it says he did sometimes. That, that, that's a huge undertaking, huge commitment. It's, it's mind-boggling yeah. to me this this year reading that, and I hadn't fully grasped it before, but mind-boggling that they were willing to do that as an entire nation. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yes, sir. Actually, it was, it was probably easier for the laboratory ready to make the comment, because the older you get, the more valuable every moment is. Mm, that's and, true. And and you learn that even though there's something in transition and there's something to anticipate, that you are uh, that moments that moments past are moments gone. And it's mm -hmm. much more difficult when you're young to imagine that the moments between now and six months or a year from now, when you finally accomplish what you're supposed to be waiting on or whatever else, uh, well, that's. I mean, it's it's just a long time, but compared to the rest of your life, it's nothing. So you want it to hurry up and happen. And encouragement to all us who are young like me, um, <laughs> encouragement to young people is that, that we actually should uh, not be so so callous to those moments in that mm -hmm. period of time, just as, a, as the Rebbe was talking about, remembering that even though this is 
you're not able to do what you're, you want to get done in the, you know, two months or a month from now or whatever else, that you still need to uh, pro still be involved in the process today so that it is not wasted time. And that's mm -hmm. the point is, and I think that's his point, that it's not to be wasted. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and exactly what we were talking about earlier, this idea of sanctification everywhere, your opportunity to do something holy even in the mundane, um, making, doing it the right way is a holy act. So there is, I think that, I think sometimes that can be that way, you know, especially for men at work or, you know, you know, ladies when you're cleaning the house or whatever else, there might be that, for those of you who might love that, good for you. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, sometimes there might be moments at work or whatnot where you're doing something that's kind of like not your favorite task. And you might be like, oh, man, I can't wait to get this done. And then we'll move on to the thing I really like doing or whatever it might be. And it's easy to get stuck into that. And you're right, you have to try to make them realize that every moment is beautiful and, and, and is to be valued and be used. Yes, sir. In the Rebbe's comments on uh, Parsha Vayigash, he says, it's true. It, it is true that our current work is transitory in nature. Regardless of what it is, it's still transitory. Um, because Mashiach is about to arrive at any moment. Nevertheless, since our daily work, in our daily work, we're following the Word of God, then we should view what we're doing as having the utmost importance and be enthusiastic in carrying out the tiniest detail. Hmm. As you get older, as you were saying, it becomes easier to get comfortable being where you are, not picking up and moving to Texas or Stuff like that. <laughs> um, and I get that. There's a little bitterness there. But if, but if the, uh, you know, if our if our focus should be on Mashiach coming, the apostolic scriptures are clear that we do not want to be the ones mm. that are embarrassed that it's coming. We need to be doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is the Word of God. Mm. Those mitzvot, what we should be doing, and it doesn't matter how long it's going to be before He comes. Or before the cloud moves and the fire starts picking up, whatever it may be, we just need to do it to the utmost of our ability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, sir. There is a, also a, a midrash. <clears throat> I was going to go see if you had it on your shelf, but you don't. So, but there's a midrash that connects the cloud itself uh, to Messiah through Daniel 7 and a couple other places, mm -hmm. you know, and Yeshua himself said, you'll see me coming mm -hmm. on the clouds. clouds. Uh, so a name, according to this Midrash, one of the names from Sheikh is, uh, I think it was An Anani, uh -huh. um, which is the cloud. Mm -hmm. So, um, wow. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, kind of cool. It's very cool. Dead Sea Scrolls make reference to Anan as being a name for Sheikh as well. Very cool. So we, um, and they're, as they're journeying, uh, chapter 10 talks, lays out, we got the trumpet thing, and then the next section talks about the, uh, the different, the, the order. And it, it's really cool because it's, uh, it's not very common in scripture that you get, they, you get the little verse over and over again, people did exactly as God had commanded Moses. But it's not very often you see it happen. And in this case, this is exactly the way that God lined it up. God said, these guys go first, and then these guys, and then these guys, and these guys. And as you pointed out, um, choreographing that with a large group of people is not easy. Um, somehow we managed to not end up with Gad getting ahead of somebody else. You know, they, they led in the right order. Um, and I thought it was also really kind of cool. We talked about this a little bit when looking at the, the layout of the camp. 
that God is uh, God has a practicality, a practical side. And I think it's really, really, really cool that he's got the, the way he lines it up is he's got the first camp goes out and moves. Then he has the guys building the tabernacle go next. So that by the time the next camp finally pulls into position to sit down, the tabernacle is already built. The Kohathites come in with all the, the special stuff and they can set it up. And it's like the, uh, the second half of the people aren't even ready to start making up their tent. And the tabernacle's like already up. You know, it's like kind of reminds me of. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things you read those, it's like you, your parents, sometimes they, they get up extra early to get everything all prepared or ready or, you know, like they, especially when you're real small, you know, you're going to go on a trip or something and it's like, you get up and, and you, know, you you throw on some clothes as like a seven-year-old and kind of stumble downstairs, kind of half excited because it's like three and four in the morning, whatever, you have to go up, get it on the plane early or whatever else. But of course, the, the bags are already in the car. You know, my dad, my dad got up an hour before I did and he's already got everything all ready. Um, and all I have to do is just, you know, take care of me and find my way into the car before, he's, uh, before I'm running too late. And Dad's yelling at me because I was always running late. But um, he would never yell at me. Is this your confession or mine? He would never <laughs> yell at me. Um, no, my point, though, is that uh, Dad was always good at having things ready, you know. But he was always prepared. Um, and so that's kind of what God has them doing here. He has them set up so that when the camp pulls in, we're like we're ready to go. Like everything is done. That's kind of cool. God is God is practical as well, well as and it, it is practical. But not only that, the the center of the camp is the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. But that's not the first thing that's set up. The first person who gets there is Judah's camp. Mm-hmm. So they all get set up, and then in relation to them, the center of the camp is built. But right. the center of the camp is not the thing going in the in the front. At least that's not the order that is given here. Right. So they're actually the second or third thing to be set up and. Um, and it's interesting that the, the center, which you think would be the most important, it's not the first thing set up. Hmm. You you would think you'd build the center and then everything is built around it. But that's not how it is because of the protection and mm-hmm. the order and stuff. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So somebody's got to be in front of the center. You gotta be the you gotta be the trendsetter's trendsetter. Kind of like in football, where the quarterback is the most important person, but you still have all these people protecting him. Oh my goodness! Did, you, did anybody else hear that? She a good wife or what? Wow, that was amazing. My wife made a football analogy. I'm a happy man right now. But that was a great that was a great picture. You got it. You got it. Um, you raised a very smart dog. Did you, you, learn did you even hear what I said, or were you just thinking about the fact that it was about the No, absolutely. It was, it was, it was, it was a perfect imagery. It was, it's like all the people protecting him are in front, and the most important guy is right behind him in the middle. Okay. It's just making sure. It lined up beautifully. I thought that was great. I thought so, too. Just like making sure. Right, exactly. And they're all lined up in front. And then you get the running backs and whatnot behind the quarterback, who's the most important. But the center of gravity is not the first guy who's there. That's right. So... There we go. That was very cool. Very cool. Um, make sure we got all the hands. Okay. So um, the uh, the next, as we dig into uh, chapter eleven, we get to a place. And actually, chapter eleven, I, I feel like it's just, it's it's a, it's a really sad chapter, but I feel like it's really really good for us today because I think that um, there's a couple of things that happen here. First off, we the, the initial group are these people are complaining, um, and and God deals with them. And that's kind of scary. And then uh, almost immediately after that, after these complaints, then you get you get more complaints. So this is like a, this is a very grouchy stage of the journey. But um, it points out that the chapter uh, eleven, verse four, it says the rabble. Um, another translation that sometimes shows up is the mixed multitude. 
uh, it's quite possible these were the Gentiles. We have, and I'm going to, as, as someone who is predominantly of Gentile descent, I'm going to say that we, um, we, have a, um, we have a very bad habit of being the, 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 the ones that pull the Jews back. And we scot to the worst. It's not so good. Because the thing is, here's the deal, and this is something I think that we have to remember as Gentiles, because I think sometimes it's easy to look at all the Jews in, in, in different parts of the world who go ahead and eat pork and who support homosexual marriage and the types of things that are obviously spoken against in the Torah. And we look at it and we say, how can they possibly do that? As though somehow we are better. The reality is that the Jews always start, start at the right place. When a Jew goes back to the center for them, it's, it's with God. Like, that's the idea. Like, Judaism teaches this concept that, like, a Jew's default is godliness. They're the people of God. They're the ones who have this, like, built in. They were chosen. This is what, this is what Paul said. He said, to them were entrusted the oracles of God. In other words, it's not so much that, like, they just happened to be, he had to pick some people group, and he just happened to choose them. It's like, by choosing them, he made them distinct. He made them special by themselves, without them doing something. Each one of them is, is genetically built differently than we are. So as a result of that, um, their default tends to be good. Now, that doesn't mean that they, they can't, they're, they're going to always do good. As we have seen, that's not always true. Um, but the thing is, when you're not <laughs> predominantly Jewish descent, unfortunately, that means that your default tends to be bad. You have, this is what Paul says. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you have to remember where you came from. He's like, you guys were following, like, the, the paganism of the world. You were under the, the power of the spirit of the air, under the power of Hasatan. You are influenced by evil. You were not part of the good group. You were outside of the covenant with God. You were outside of relationship without with God. Hope. Without hope. And so the thing is, that, that means that even the that is what actually becomes where some of us are reading or doing my, my dad's study in the book of Galatians right now and this can become such a huge problem that the, the, the Gentiles even the converts keep having bad habit of doing things that they did before that there's this there's this issue that Judaism wrestles with this like can we ever trust these guys like even when they you know they go through a, a big ordeal to convert and they still keep doing things they shouldn't be doing and, and it becomes a real, a real danger. And I think the reason why I bring this up is because I think that we have to remember this. It's so easy sometimes to look at yourself and think, I mean, this is like the 10th time you've read this parasha. You've been doing this for so long. You just kind of like, you know, I got that checked. We're good. I don't have any issues. And it's like, no, no, no. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, beware when you, when you think you stand. Beware lest you fall. In other words, um, the time when you should probably be most careful is when you start to feel most comfortable. When you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, I've got this figured out, I'm doing really well. I mean, this mixed multitude, if, if they are the ones that are the ones triggering the issue here, they're the, they, they've been here for a year. They sat through all of Leviticus. They, they know what's going on. And yet, they're the ones causing trouble that ends up actually impacting the Jewish people as a whole. And that's the really sad part. Talk about community. The bad ones end up pulling everybody down. Well, in this case, the Gentiles, we, this, we know this with the Jews a lot. I mean, the poor Jews, like, they didn't ask to want to get, you know, introduced to all this paganism. They just happened to be hanging around next to most of us who, you know, got bored and decided to start doing it again. You know, whatever. And so it's like we've, we've, got, a, we've got a bad history that we have to be, not only be aware of, but also be fighting against. It's, it's in there. You want, the reason why, I mean, think about it. Paul describes the, the way you used to be as the old man. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a hyphenated title. The, the, the person used to be is the old man. It's, it's, it's the old version of you. It's, it's what you used to do. It's what, your, it's what your default kind of was. And it's like we have to be in, in, in awareness of that. 
and, and fighting against it and staying on top of it. St- realizing that just because we've been doing these things for so long doesn't mean that we're settled. We're not, we're not uh, as some people like to say, if you, if you, if you sit still, you stagnate. Um, there is no staying in the same place. You're either going forward or going backwards. Um, and it's funny because this particular parsha, I feel like, ties in so well with um, Exodus, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Because if you read, uh, one, there's the, uh, if you read through this, the, they ask for meat. And the, the, the sages kind of go in there like, don't these guys have tons of like cattle? I mean, where's the, where's the meat issue here? Mm-hmm. And they just had meat not that long ago. They had the quail landed and whatever else. And God gave them that with no problem, right? And so it's like, what are they, what are they looking for? And it's interesting that they don't actually, they start asking for, for meat, but they really key in on uh, all this fresh produce, you know? Oh, they used to have fish in Egypt and all the leeks and the melons and all this different stuff. And, um, and the sages, there's a tradition. That, granted, they, they describe what, what um, manna tastes like here, so I don't know how valid this tradition is. But there's a tradition that says that manna could taste like whatever you wanted it to. That basically, they, they tie in some verses from Psalms that say God gave them their heart's desire, and they teach this idea that manna could be whatever he wanted it to be. And so they're like, so not only did they have meat, which they had meat, um, not only are they eating angel food, which is pretty amazing, they're, they're, um, they're, they're, that manna could taste like anything. So what do they really want? What they really wanted is they're tired of having... They want, they want something they're not allowed to have, is basically what it boils down to. We can't have the stuff in Egypt anymore, and that's what we miss. And it's like, I think that there's that tendency as well. Like, you've been doing the right thing for a long time. There's that tendency to be like, you know, I remember having real bacon. That was great. Now, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that bacon is an inherently uh, terrible, that's wrong, but it doesn't have to say, well, I don't eat it because it tastes bad. You can say, I don't eat it because God said not to. But you should be happy about the fact that you're doing what God said. When you regret doing what God said, when you kind of wish you didn't have to, you know, that's when there's a problem. You start thinking to yourself, if I wasn't following God, I would let into that person, and I would feel great. It's like, no, 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 that's destructive. That's not the way that we should be living. And this idea is exactly what happens here. They're sitting there, and they're going, we were still in Egypt. And of course, the sages are like, what, Pharaoh was giving you free fish? <laughs> he was whipping you. I don't think it went quite the way that you remember it. There but, weren't leaks. And, 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 and the thing is, like, for those of us, I mean, I, I, I grew up in a believing family, so I don't remember all this, uh, you know, what the world could really be like. For those of you who don't have that background, or if you watch TV and whatnot, I mean, Juliana talked about this, it's like, you know, you watch TV and they all paint this, you know, the romantic stories of these people meeting each other in a bar and they... You know, and it's like, and all this, the world's ro- story of romance looks beautiful, and then you watch enough TV shows, and you see the other side of it, where, like, they're all awkward and uncomfortable, and they don't really know how the relationship's going, because there's no commitment, because that wasn't the point in the first place, it was just to have fun, but now one of them wants to be committed, the other doesn't, it's not really, it's like, there's just all this angst, like, all the time, and it's like, um, and it's like, wow, okay, that, that's not really the way that it was for us, I'm so glad we didn't do that, you know, and there's all this weird pressure that comes into it when you don't have God's um, security system that he's put in place for us. And so, uh, you know, Paul says, contentment with godliness is great gain. And the, the mistake here is that they're, they're missing out on both of us. Yes, sir. Um, I, would, yeah, I think verses like the, this passage kind of get used a lot of times to, to point out how 
God is kind of the, the God of the Old Testament is sort of mean because he, he's very swift. Like, he does not tolerate complaining. I mean, it's like fire. And it's like, oh, wait, sorry, sorry. You know, and then it's like, okay, now we have meat. And it's like a bunch of a plague, you know, breaks out and stuff like that. But I think it's so important because, that, like the sages point out, like this starts influencing everyone around you, mm-hmm. and which becomes such a bad issue. And mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because that's what Yeshua points out where he's talking about the kids, and he's like, if, you, if anyone even lets one of these kids astray, you might as well just like tie a millstone around your neck, because you're as good as <laughs> yeah, jump in the Sea of Galilee. Right, yeah, yeah, because it's like, and so he takes a very harsh stance on that as well, like, like negatively influencing people around you. It's bad enough if you're sinning and being ungrateful and complaining about stuff, but it's even worse when it starts affecting the ones around you, right. which we know it does every time. So every it's time. just, it's a, it's a good yeah. reminder, but I think it's interesting that you know, Yeshua also doesn't have any tolerance for the negative influence of others, just right. like God right. doesn't in this passage. Well, yeah, and you, um, if you're a good parent, you don't have any tolerance for, you know, your kids misbehaving either, because you got you react quickly, you know? That's mm-hmm. kind of that's kind of the same idea. I mean, there's times to be gracious, of course, but, I mean, the idea is that discipline loses its value if the child is an associated discipline with the misbehavior. Right. I mean, this even, even on a psychological level of, like, you know, animals, they say, like, if a dog doesn't react the way you want it to, you, you respond immediately, because it has to connect. If there's enough time delay, they won't connect them, and they won't learn the lesson. And so God, God moves very fast. It's like, you complained, boom! And they got the point. If you notice, after this, this doesn't happen again. You know, we have two routes of complaining in the same chapter about food, and it's like, things stabilize for a good long while from here. You get the water complaining. Right, you get that. Although that's a little more desperate, and actually God doesn't doesn't really respond to the people as negatively there as he does here. So you kind of get that idea. Um, this is, the, the point that I was saying about this, that they had what they needed. The sages teach that this is outright, straight up, unexcusable discontentment. They had everything they needed. They were just whining. Like, they, they didn't like the way that God had set up life. I know this because I like to whine. So I recognize when this is happening. And there's something that, like, when, you're, when, you, when you, um, you read this, it's a reminder. It's a wake-up call. Say, you know what? I, it's, so, it's so easy to look at your life and be dis- disappointed in something that didn't go exactly the way that you wanted it to. And it's like, but that wasn't the way that it was supposed to go. And more importantly, um, God has taught us that we have to be content with everything. To, to not be content is to spit in his face and say, what have you done? Yes, Micah? About the mountains, cucumbers, and all that sort of stuff. Oh, Rabbi David Foreman made a video about where that came from, because the manna descended from heaven along with the dew. But what they were asking for wasn't anything from the sky or above the earth. But they were all asking for stuff that came, grew underground, hmm. or stuff that lived underground. Hmm. Yeah, they were. They were. Uh... They were th- they were thinking about earthly things, really. Good point. A, you kind of see Moshe's humanity here too. He gets very dis- like despair with the with all the people. I mean, you start saying things where you're like, "Whoa, is this the same Moshe?" Like, is he really talking to God? I know. Yeah, just so, right so, so strong. But you just see like how desperate he is. But yet, it's um, first was designed to point out like God's response is something we should just have playing in the back of our minds at all time. Like, is my hand too short? That I like can't help or can't do something like of course I will I'll, I'll take care of it you know and that calms Moshe but 
Yeah, it's, you see like how, how he, is, he is just a guy. He's just he gets, a guy. He gets stressed too. Well, I think it's interesting that Moshe gets most stressed by the people. And I think that's so true for parents, for people who are in a leadership position. Um, the most stress you feel is when you don't feel like, you feel the pressure from the people that you're dependent on. You. And so Moses really feels this pressure. He feels this anxiety and frustration. And he's frustrated in this case because he recognizes just like God does that this is wrong. And he feels like, come on. Like, we've been doing this whole thing for a year. We, we finally start moving to camp. We get two spots in, and now, now we're complaining. And, you know, he's, he's just he's kind of just over the edge there. Are we but, there yet? <laughs> but God's, but the God's point, though, is God's, God's bringing him, coming back. And, and God has infinite patience, even though he's, his wrath is swift. Um, it's really kind of cool that God, God works with, with the people. And uh, I think there's also an important lesson here. It's like if you want the things that God that are that God has said not to have, and you start really lusting for those, that's kind of the, one of the words they use in here, craving. Um, uh, God has a funny way of giving you exactly what you want until it starts coming out of your nose. So it's like you you know you want to um, you know if you want to if you want to uh, this is an example if you want to live a lifestyle in which you can get angry and blow up at people in traffic and say whatever you want because it makes you feel good it's like you know god will let you deal with the high blood pressure and the heart attacks and you know all of the things that come along with that it's like there's a it's a package deal and um and so god has a funny way of making you decide actually i don't want any of this anymore <laughs> okay so we're on to the last little bit here final stretch We've got the very famous story, and I hope that you remember this story because you're supposed to, about what happened to Miriam in the wilderness. Um, she gets in trouble for speaking Lashon Hara, evil speech against Moses. There's a really interesting story, and I, t- I almost feel like I just have to read this one because this is just such a great midrash on what this looks like. Because I think that sometimes it's so easy to, to not really understand what Lashon Hara looks like. We focus in so much on um, don't do Lashon Hara, but what does that even mean? So the story, this is just a midrash. This may or may not have happened. But um, Miriam, they're talking to the elders. Okay, so the elders get appointed. Moses gives them some of his spirit. They start prophesying. This is a big deal. It says, when Miriam saw the candles, this is from the, uh, this is a, a Rashi's, a Sifri Rashi, they're talking here on this one. And they said that um, when Miriam saw the candle, uh, saw them, she said, fortunate are these men and fortunate are their wives said Zipporah to her, do not say fortunate are their wives, say woman to their wives. For from the day that God had spoke to Moses, your brother, he has not been with me. Um, and then immediately Miriam went to Aaron, and they took to discussing the matter. As it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses about the woman, about his separating himself from the woman. And they said, Moses is a prideful one. Did God only speak with him? He has already spoken with many prophets, ourselves included. Did we separate from our spouses? Now, the, this, of course, is um, tying into the idea that we talk about unclean and clean and all this stuff, and tradition holds that Moses um, takes a half step away from Zipporah, partly because he's just in constant communication with God. He always has to be in a state of cleanliness, uh, of spiritual cleanliness, and so um, the things that, that happen as part of being husband and wife complicate that. And so he, he takes kind of this half step away in order so that way he can be this vessel for God. That's the, uh, that's the tradition. The, regardless of what you think of that, the point, though, is, do you hear the story? Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? So-and-so says something. You heard it from the source. You didn't make it up. It's not, it's not gossip. It's, not, it's gossip. It's not slander. It's true. 
and you go and you talk to somebody else. Did you hear what happened? So so and so was so concerned. I'm so concerned. Yeah, I you hope know? that's not true. I'm not actually. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're not gossiping here. We're actually trying to find a solution. You know, we just want to talk through this, or we want to learn the lesson from this. What do you think about this? I feel like I should. We we should do it differently. We should you know? talk to them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, we don't. Yeah, that's the other funny part. Of course, is that people are much more. That's right. Uh, yeah, people are much more willing to talk to other people about people than talk to them. But the point, though, is that like that a story sounds so simple, and I hope that it does because it's supposed to. Like Miriam gets in enormous trouble for this. Like this is the idea. Like you, you find it is opportunities to speak badly about people come up all the time, and some of them feel very comfortable. Some of them are not. They're not. It's not necessarily speaking. Uh, you know, it's not. It's not malicious. Yeah, it's not. So it doesn't have to be malicious. It doesn't have to be cursing them out. It doesn't have to be calling them all sorts of names. It can just literally be commenting, discussing with someone you're close to. In this case, it's Miriam and Aaron. I mean, the people he pulls out are brother and sister. Surely they talk about everything, you know, right? So it's this imagery here of of a very casual conversation almost, in which they're just all they're just they're just discussing how bad Moses is. That's basically what we're discussing, and God's not okay with that. And that's kind of, I think that that, I, I don't know, to me that resonated. I think I definitely have sometimes do that. You know, you get frustrated. You want to kind of vent a little bit. You go and talk to somebody. Talk about what someone else did that was that bothered you. Yes, sir? I think it's also important, though, because I agree with everything you said, but I think it's also important to, to recognize in this particular case, it's not like they were talking uh, about just anyone. True. Right, so this is Moshe that were t- that they were slighting, as it were, and for all intents and purposes, Moshe is God on earth at this point. <laughs> right. right, so it's so there's a there's a there's an important teaching here, which is, you know, it's bad enough to speak the Shonara against anyone, right, but do not do that against the anointed one. Right. Because, you know, the price of poker goes way up at that point. <laughs> so, so that, that's a, that's a, I think that's a, another nuance to the story. That's true, that's very right? true. Because Moshe is God's representative on the earth. So it's kind of a double issue here. So it's not only Lashon Hara, but it's also speaking against the leader, which God had already said earlier not to do. So it's kind of a double hit on that particular point. Yes, sir? But I think it was slightly more serious than that because it was almost like they're trying to equate themselves to Moses. Like, right. doesn't he speak to us as well? Like, why is Moses more important? And God calls him out. He's like, well, I don't speak to you face to face. Moses is the only one that I, I speak and show in my form. You guys I talk to in dreams and visions. So you, you're not on the same level. Right. On that, on that same point, our apostolic scriptures were written by men who spoke face to face. And when, maybe we don't, but when some are prone to discount their word hmm. and say, well, I mean, Baal Shem Tov, I mean, he's awesome, and equate Baal Shem Tov or uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe or any number of good men, Aaron and, and Miriam were doing God's work. They were, they were awesome. They were top shelf, but they weren't Moses. Moses, in this regard, that's that's Yeshua and his disciples. They they met face to face. They mm-hmm. talked as someone talks to another person. Mm-hmm. When they say something, it's top shelf, superior to everything else we can read. 
Good point. That's a good point. And I think also it kind of goes in you with your comment about um, they were equating themselves. I feel like that's really kind of what Lashon Hara really almost always boils down to. It, it really, a lot of times, it's about trying to pull someone down to make you look better. And maybe it's not always done that way intentionally, but that really is what it kind of equates to. And Rabbi Lappin, because I think that there, there are times, there are times in which discussion might be necessary to figure out what to do about something. You know, we want to deal with this issue. How do we deal with this issue? You know, you've, something's going on in the family, and you've got to talk about how are we going to approach this? How, how especially in, in a marriage relationship, how are we as a husband and wife? There's a little more leniency in Judaism with regards to the rules of Lashon Hara when it comes to spouses because of some of those very issues. You know, some practicality has to step in here. At the same time, I think Rabbi Lappin had a really cool comment on this one. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, what's the what's the point here? Like, what's the what's the what's the end result that's really really going for? And it's like, if if speaking lashon hara is just going to make you look good, maybe that's not being motivated by the best motivation. It's like, is there a practical result that's going to come out of this? Are you actually going to do something about it, or are you just talking to kind of make you you feel better about yourself? Because that's really kind of what it boils down to. I admit, I've done that. You know, you feel kind of down. Something. Something's not going quite your way, and boy, you talk badly about somebody else, all of a sudden you feel a whole lot better about yourself. You know, there's this funny little joke Jerry Seinfeld talks about those of you who are old enough to remember checks. You know, once upon a time we had checks, uh, and checks used to have pictures on them, uh, you know, various images and whatnot. And Jerry Seinfeld's like, what's, what's up with all the pictures of these guys, you know, skiing or at the beach, and they're having a great time, and I'm here slaving away writing checks? He's like, I want checks with bums and dead people on them. I can look at these checks and go, my life's not that great, but at least I have more money than that guy. <laughs> and that's kind of what I think Lashon Hara ends up being. It's like you want to put somebody else down to feel better about who you are, or at least what you think you are. And, and, uh, and anytime there's a temptation to do that, if that's kind of what's making you, maybe you start to feel good about yourself when you're talking, that's a good, that's a good gut check. You're like, uh, maybe we don't need to be saying this. Um, you know, so just something to think about when you think about practicality here. And this is a great example of humility because you, you reference it as being the most exceedingly humble. And I, that like one of the coolest examples of humility is when you're not the one saying those things about yourself. God's the <laughs> one that says, like, he's the most important person in the entire world. He's the one that's used to be face-to-face. You know, Moshe is not like retorting that to them. Right. Or, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, I think that's, that's the best when someone else could speak of you and you don't really have to ever say anything about your position. Absolutely. That's a good, very good point. There's a really cool, um, we get to kind of the end here, there's a really cool, at the very end of the story, they wait for Miriam. Miriam gets this thing, and it says, interestingly, because God says, let her be put out of the camp for seven days. He doesn't tell the people to wait for her, interestingly enough, but they do. And there's a midrash that, well, the midrash points out, uh, the, or the discussion on this commentary points out that the sages note that uh, back, way back, 80-something years ago, they, um, Moses, or about 80 years ago, Moses is, um, is a baby, and he's in a little basket in the Nile River, and it says that Miriam lingered. Miriam waited to see what would happen. She was watching to see how she could help Moses. So the, the, the commentary points out that she waited a few moments to see what she could do to help her brother, so the entire congregation reciprocates, and they wait seven days for Miriam. And it's kind of it's a good reminder, you know, these little these little investments that you make. You know, you don't think to yourself that it matters that much. That one little thing you did is worth something. Why would I not do that? And it's like um, there is always a reward for a good deed. Final thoughts? We're good. We close this out in prayer. I will. Sir.
Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for the good word about promotion, your faithful servants with whom you spoke with faith keeping. I pray, Father, you would find us faithful, not to murmur, complain, and to gossip. And that our rest would be pleasing to you, sanctifying to your name. And in the end, your son Yeshua would give us rest. We thank you for this. We shall be sure how much you have name. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Mm -hmm. Good job, Joshua.